When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Bulls HQ podcast. Thanks for joining me. Hope you're all traveling well. We're in the middle of the playoffs at the moment. Conference finals are going on. And to be honest with you, it's been a complete snore fest. The Warriors are dominating the West Coast. The Cavs are absolutely destroying the Boston Celtics. And to be fair, the playoffs have been kind of boring. So there's not really much going on from a basketball sense in the NBA at the moment. It's been a bit of a lull these playoffs. So and, and to that point, there's not much going on with the Bulls, obviously, as well. The Bulls are obviously fairly entrenched in their off-season. So what I've decided to do, rather than just staying quiet over the off-season, is actually do a record a podcast I've wanted to wanted to do for quite a while now. And um, as you probably can assess from the previous podcasts I've done, as well as if you've followed me on Twitter or whatever it may be, I can come off with a bit of a pessimistic or negative Bulls fans so what I thought I would do is actually bring in probably the most optimistic Bulls fan I know and that's Fred Pfeiffer uh, from the Chicago Bullseye podcast so Fred is probably the biggest I won't say Homer (laughs) I won't use that word I'll say he's the most optimistic fan going around and he definitely is very pro Bulls in a lot of in a lot of his uh, stances and positions with the Bulls so I thought it would be fun to get Fred on and challenge my thinking, I guess, in terms of where I sit versus where Fred sits. We constantly get into it on Twitter, so I thought it would be fun to explore each other's positions in the offseason and and just pretty much just shoot the shit with Bulls basketball topics and see where we land on those things. I was expecting us to disagree on a lot of things we did it on a few things but um we we also agreed on a few things as well so that was quite interesting so fred and i pre-recorded this this discussion so yeah hopefully this fills your your basketball needs over the off season particularly with the playoffs being down so uh without further ado this is my chat with fred pfeiffer of chicago bullseye podcast fred thanks for coming on mate it's an honor uh everybody I'm sure on Twitter thinks that we're, you know, you're my nemesis or we're mortal <laughs> enemies. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. I got nothing but love for you, brother. Nothing at all. I've always enjoyed your tweets. I always enjoy your, your, uh, some of your comments. Although I will admit some of them I find a little irritating and <laughs> I, I might, I might have to, you know, I'll, I'll be in the middle of something and I see a tweet from you. I'm like, all right, I got to address this and I'll put everything else down and we'll go back and forth. But I mean, like I just said, you know, before when you get down to it, we both have a red hot love for the beloved bull and that's all that matters in the long run. We could disagree on things, but as long as we're passionate about the team, we care about the team. That's all that matters in the long run. Yeah, look, you're 100% right and 
but having said that, I kind of like the mystique of being nemesis on, on Twitter, particularly. Um, <laughs> a lot, well, like you said, exactly the same thing. When I when I see a tweet from you that I uh, vehemently disagree with, I have to stop what I'm <laughs> doing as well and make sure I quote that and just come up with some snarky response because, um, <laughs> yeah, occasionally I can get irritated too online. And that's probably something I need to work on myself. But uh, well, look, I'm you're, you're a magician <laughs> at it. You're a magician <laughs> at it, no doubt. You bring out the best I love the me. comeback. <laughs> and the worst they yeah, got yeah, it yeah. no look it's, it is good to talk to to, to be talking to you and the, and the reason why I wanted to talk to you as well is because it's very easy for me to you know have a podcast and talk to people that have similar mindset to myself and you know if I repeatedly do that I think it can get uh, it become pretty stale after a while so it's always good to have someone online that I can you know that has a differing opinion that I can speak to and I guess sort of challenge myself and challenge my own thinking. So that's part of the reason why I wanted to get you on, just to have someone who has opposing views that we can challenge each other at the end, at the end of the day. And obviously, just talk hoops as well. Amen. Um, but look, let's start. Well, let's, let's start here. And I, I, I guess I want to start here because we know each other online as, as Bulls fans, and we're, we're pretty much on the opposite sides of the, of the fan spectrum. Um, you're probably the heavy optimist in this. In this example, whereas I'm the extremely negative, potentially, or pessimistic, I like to call myself a realist, but uh, I'm sure people see me as a negative Bulls fan. Uh, we talk shit to each other all the time, but we don't really know that much about each other. So I want you to, to enlighten me about yourself, Fred. How did you how did you become this super optimistic Chicago sports fan? What's the, be- what's the background to Fred Pfeiffer? Well, I, I haven't always been this optimistic. I think this is kind of a reflex action to the general negativity that's clearly there in the fan base. I mean, mm-hmm. so to go back on my history, to give you an idea where I came from, number one, I'm old. I'm 43 <laughs> years old. So I come from an era, and I remember an era when the city of Chicago was called the second city. Yeah. Uh, there was a time before Michael Jordan came that the most famous Chicagoan was uh, Al Capone, a gangster. You would go anywhere in the country and you'd say, what, what comes to mind when you think of Chicago? And they'd say Al Capone. I remember the 83 White Sox, the 84 Cubs, just massive disappointments. And although we had, you know, kind of like the bright light of the 85 Bears, in retrospect, that was a disappointment. We only got one title out of that team. So Michael Jordan comes in 1984. Uh, I was around you know, 10 years old. And by 1986, the guy was ready to win a title. I mean, the guy is just a force of nature. The greatest thing never happened to my sports life here in the city. But he had a team of bums around him from 86 to, you know, 89. Dave Corzine, Orlando Warwards were there uh, when he, you know, put the fear of God into the Boston Celtics, 86 Celtics, who some people say is the best team of all time. And Mike had to go through this buzzsaw of talented teams. Uh, you know, with the Celtics, the, you know, the Cavs were good at that era. The Atlanta Hawks were good at that era. Uh, and then obviously the Detroit Pistons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people forget the millennials now don't realize this. You know, Jordan went 4-1, 4-2, 4-3, three years in a row losses to the Pistons before they finally swept them. You know, and going through something like that, as I entered high school, I kind of feel like I grew up with Michael Jordan. And, you know, when I graduated high school, I won, the Bulls won their first title. So Michael Jordan did more for the city than any, any single human being. You know, really, this Chicago is a wasteland in the winter. And when we won those six titles, the city was transformed from a city of losers to a city of champions. And, 
it was it's never the rest is history. So I feel like I owe a lot to this organization, to this team. John Paxson was a part of those first three titles. He was also a coach on the fourth one. And I, I love John Paxson. He's obviously another guy who I love a lot. So why, how did I become super optimistic? Michael leaves, and then I go through hell on earth, which is <laughs> the Krause, the post-Jordan Krause years. Yeah, yeah. And, and I always tell this story. I, I distinctly remember going to a game, um, uh, like in, I think it was 2001, right around there, and watching this team warm up. Chris Ancy, uh, Australia's uh, one of the yep. finest products, yep. or one of the worst products ever, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sent out to the NBA, watching that bum. I remember watching these guys in warmups and I, I turned to my friend. I'm like, this is, this is like the, I, I seen, co- you know, college teams better in this. This is, this isn't getting better. This is getting worse. What is this? You know, like to see where we were and to go from that, that, I mean, I have never, it, it's hard to describe the level of despair, the level of disappointment. And I feel like John Paxton saved me from that. When he took over the job in 2003, within one year, things immediately got better. He drafts Heinrich, he drafts, uh, ben Gordon, he drafts Luol Deng, and immediately he starts just completely, you know, re, uh, redefining the team as a team of losers into a team that works hard. And you know, I love that team, absolutely yeah. love that team. That's great. That's great. So um, I feel like I, I just felt like uh, I owe John Paxson. I, I, I feel he's done a good job over these years, and I feel that a lot of the negativity towards John Paxson. You know, maybe for Gar Foreman, it's a lot more justified, but for John Paxson specifically, it's it's not fair. I think he's done a good job of identifying talent. I think he's done a good job of drafting overall. Um, and I, I really think the guy is, when it comes to, I know a couple of people who know him, uh, you know, and I, I, I know he's a good person. And on top of that, he's, he's I think, just a great, ba- he's got a great basketball mind. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel as desperate or as negative as the general fan base does about the future of this organization. Okay. Now, what about you? So I give you a little forewarning of me. Yeah. I'd love to know, you know, the 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 continent that produced great Kylie Minogue and Men at Work <laughs> and Midnight Oil. Uh, I love a lot of those bands, a lot of that music, especially Men at Work. Very underrated band. Always, Are you in Sydney or no, Melbourne? I mean, number one. I'm in Melbourne, and I always picked you as a big Kylie Minogue fan. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, she's it, got it going on, brother. She does. She's got it going on. She does. So that that makes sense, but. Look, my story is similar to yours to a degree. Um, obviously, I didn't grow up in Chicago and live through what you did, but um, and I've told this story before, but just for your information, I mean, Michael Jordan being who he was and growing the game to to, to be this really global game, I guess, um, enabled the NBA to enter TV screens all over the globe, um, including Australia, so... We didn't get a ton of NBA here in Australia, but when we did, it was typically Bulls games, and I would have been a kid during the 90s, so an impressionable kid, and when you did watch basketball on TV, there were only a few teams on, and the Bulls were one of those teams, and that was because of Jordan, so um, without Jordan being in Chicago, I'm probably not an NBA fan, and I'm definitely not a Chicago Bulls fan, so I I, I owe my fandom to Michael Jordan. Um I, you know, I wouldn't be a basketball fan. I'm, I'm, who knows what I'd be doing um, if it wasn't for Michael Jordan being who he was and taking over the game and making it a global game. And again, to sort of come back to what you said about around Paxson and, and, the, and the team he formed, 
whilst I was young through the Jordan era and I became a Bulls fan during that era, it was when I became a fanatic, if you want to put it that way. That was when uh, Heinrich, Paxson, Gordon, Deng, these sorts of guys, when that team really took off, that's when I was full into my fandom, I guess. Um, so I owe a lot to that team as well, and I have a special place in my heart to that team. So even though we're on opposite sides of the globe, I think in some ways our story is fairly similar uh, in terms of the high-level details of it. It's, it's, it is very similar, I guess, which is uh, I'm, pro- I'm, pro- I'm pretty sure most, most Bulls fans would have an, a, sim- a similar affiliation to, to Jordan and to those early Paxson teams as well. Um, they were just great teams. They were great teams to watch. No doubt. Does Luke Longley uh, at all have a have a warm place in your heart? You know, obviously being from Australia, <laughs> yeah. was he part of the reason that you were attracted to the Bulls, or was it more Michael? And look, definitely more Michael for sure. I mean, like as a kid, you're not really concerning yourself with a big seven foot two lumbering center sort of thing. So you're after the the guys putting all the all the <laughs> points in the buckets. So um, obviously, you know, having an Australian guarding or manning the center spot on those championships, um, the second repeat, a three-peat there, rather. That was just a bonus, I guess. But um, since then, there's been a few few Australians that have come through through the Bulls, which has been, like I said, a bonus. And hopefully, there's a few more that go through the Bulls, um, hopefully in the off-season. But uh, no, it was was definitely all about Michael, my friend. He he was the one. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's my story. Sounds very similar to yours. Um, But look... After you've explained that, I, I guess that makes a little bit more sense to me now as to why you take some of the positions that you do and potentially why we do butt heads occasionally. Um, you, you, you know, you've seen it all. You've seen worse times than this. So I can understand your position as to why you may think, you know, the current crop of team and the current crop of players, rather, it's not as bad as what potentially some may make it, make it out to be, which is fair. I, I respect that opinion. But let, let's 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 get there stuck into these questions that I've prepared. All right. Sounds so, good. <laughs> the first one I want to tackle, and, and I remember this one because, like we said before, this is one of those moments where I had to stop what I was doing and, and make sure I t- made sure I tweeted this out. But within the space of a few days, I saw you tweet that the Bulls needed to blow it up. Now, to your to your defense, that came after the Bulls had been eliminated from the from the playoffs. So you were probably highly emotional at that point. I understand. But then several days later, I saw you tweet out that the Bulls need to, to start building again and building around Butler. And I saw, I saw you tweet out an image of Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul. So within a few, within a few, a uh, few days, I was sort of confused as you, as to what you wanted to do, Fred. So let's set the record straight right here, right now. Tell me what you want the Bulls to be doing from this season onwards. Obviously it's the off season now, but, um, what do you want the Bulls to be doing? Do you want to blow it up or do you want to, to rebuild around Jimmy Butler? Well, all right. In fairness to myself, I, you're probably right. You may, <laughs> you may be exaggerating some of it. Yeah. I, I felt like there was a clear uh, – when the Bulls traded Taj McDermott in you know the second-round pick yeah. for Payne, I thought that was a clear indication that, hey, they want to tank. They don't want to make the playoffs. They want to be a team that goes into the lottery for this year. Yeah. And I was on board with that. Like, this is one of the best drafts in, in most people who follow the draft say in, in, in the history of the NBA. There's a ton of talent here. You can get really quality players all the way up to 12, 13, 14. Um, so 
might be a good idea to tank this year. I'm fine with moving Taj, fine with moving uh, McDermott, uh, who obviously McDermott I was a big fan of, and he clearly never lived up to where we wanted him to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I was on board with that. Mm-hmm. Th- then the weight injury was the final nail in the coffin because I'm like, all right, even if without him they got no shot in the playoffs, you know, of making the miracle. I, I always felt that Wade and Butler in the playoffs would be very formidable and could make a miracle because they both have the unique ability of getting to the free throw line uh, and they both can, when hot, draw double teams. That's the, the biggest thing that is you know difficult to guard. If you have two players uh, who can get to the free throw line and draw double teams, that's usually indicative of playoff success. The Bulls had that, obviously didn't work out in the playoffs. But, you know, I was fine with them either going for it or, or you know, just tanking. Suddenly, though, after, after he got hurt, Portis stepped up. Valentine stepped up. Nico stepped up. And Nico played fantastic basketball shortly thereafter. So they started winning games. Hey, now I'm on board. It was a roller coaster, and therefore you, you'll see the roller coaster in my tweets. <laughs> I was on board with them winning, no, too. I mean, that's the biggest thing, though, right? You, the Bulls needed one of those guys, Portis, Valentine, uh, Felicio, to, to have the light go on. That's what I, I keep on making this point about the Wizards. The Wizards were a bigger disappointment than the Bulls last year before, uh, before last season. They finished behind the Bulls, and they lost Nene. How did they get better? Well, suddenly the light goes on for Otto Porter Jr. He's top seven in the league in three-point percentage. And they got a player who really, you know, figured it out. That's what I wanted to see. And finally, Portis. I was at Bulls one. Uh, I was blown away with how good he played in that game. Not only that, Valentine hit three huge three pointer in the fourth quarter. Those guys actually started showing signs. When those signs were shown, you want to see playoff experience. You want to get playoff experience. So. It looked really good after two games against Boston, obviously, and then you know, and then Rondo got hurt, and the rest is history. But um, so, where do we go for the offseason? Where's my head at now? I, I I've come to the realization. I think I think we got to trade Jimmy Butler. Oh, um, okay. you know, he's, he's got two. He's got two more years right on this deal. Yeah, the bargain deal. Uh, I guess the question is, you know, can the Bulls win against LeBron? And I really felt I'd start seeing signs of LeBron, you know, fading. Yeah. But this playoff series has just changed. I, I, I cannot believe this guy is still playing at this level. Yeah. And it's just, you know, he's good. Do you see any signs of him getting worse? No. I sure as heck no. don't. No. As, lo- as long as he keeps on playing at this level, he's got at least two more years. At least. Maybe oh. three. Yeah. And I don't want to be signing Jimmy Butler to a five-year deal at the age of 30. I think that's going to look awful with the mileage he has on him. And so, um, and you know, I've, I've also felt, I, I was really frankly disappointed. I don't know if you feel this way. Let's get your opinion on it. Mm-hmm. I was really, really disappointed with Jimmy in the playoffs in two games. Game three, yep. you're up 2-0, you come home. He has no free throw attempts and no assist. How is that possible? I, I, like, I'm watching the game over a few times. They made their run with him on the bench in the second quarter. They do a fantastic job to get within, I think, with what two at halftime, four at halftime, and he comes out in the third quarter and it, he's playing the exact same way. No sense of urgency, no aggressiveness. I, I can't even believe that was the same player uh, in Game Three. It, it was one of the worst performances I've ever seen from a superstar, mm-hmm. uh, an all you know, an all NBA All Pro. So, 
I don't know what he did. I don't know what he was thinking. He comes out game four, has a really nice game. Game five, there's another game going into the fourth quarter. We're down two. Here's our chance, man. This is our chance to do it. This is your chance to be that player, that guy, to show who we are. And he, he goes 0 for 2 in the fourth quarter. It's just like I lost a lot of faith in the guy in that playoff series. I don't know if you felt the same way. What's your opinion? Look, I wouldn't say I lost faith in Jimmy, and I think it's important that we we preface it by saying that Butler was probably carrying an injury. Uh, and this is probably another negative about Butler is I don't think he – the way he plays and the way he pushes himself and the way he... I don't think he listens to the coaches in the sense of he always wants to be on the court, these sorts of things. And you know when he's on the court, he's going to go you know, harder than anyone else on the court. So because of that, I think his playing style is conducive to injury. So I think when we end up in the playoffs or towards the end of the season, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that for the last three to four seasons, Butler's been carrying probably something significant that we don't know about, that he hasn't let on, that the team hasn't let on. So I think that's important to note that he probably was injured. And I think that explained that game five performance. I can't remember what the injury was, but it it was reported, I think, that he had a a hand injury or something of that nature. But that game three, that game three performance was just terrible. Um, And I I fully agree with you on that point. And... Take a contrary point or devil's advocate point. Yep. He played great in game four, I thought, for the most part, as far as attacking. Yeah. So how do you explain? I don't think you can pass off your game three performance on an injury. No, no, no. no and no, no. game five, he played great in the third quarter. Yeah. And then he comes out in a Q4 when you know, we needed to close him. He actually had rest, too, mm. the beginning of that quarter. And he played great in the last game. So I, it, it's like I do understand, yeah, he probably was carrying on an injury and and but everybody is at this time of the yeah. year. There's there's a lot of guys playing with that. And you know, is I, I that's where I don't buy it when he showed that in other points of that series. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's still healthy. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you go zero for two and take two shots? And you know, he was dribbling down the shot clock to five six, and then throwing the ball into the corner to you know, I, I I could you know Isaiah Cannon on some of those possessions in game five. So yeah. I understand that point, and I'm sure you're you're correct to a certain degree, but... No, look, um, I, I agree with your assessment on game five. I thought his last his last quarter was it was kind of bad, and, you know, Dwayne Wade was shooting too much, whether Wade was shooting too much because Butler didn't want the ball, or, or Butler didn't shoot because Wade was shooting too much. I guess we'll never know or understand what the dynamic was there, but... For game three, I think that's definitely inexcusable. His, his shot, his shot selection was terrible. It was, it was just settling for those fall away mid range shots. I think he, maybe he just got a little too confident. The Bulls were up two zero going back to Chicago. He had played a really good game one and two. Maybe he thought, you know, I agree, he, he could come back and just home court take You're those right. difficult two point two point shots. But he he wasn't aggressive at all. Credit the Celtics defense; they they did play well on him, but he just didn't force the issue at all. He didn't try to push towards the line taking bad shots and yeah that was a really bad performance and I was disappointed really disappointed with him after game three it didn't necessarily change my opinion of him as a player or my faith in him but um I can understand why why you would be disappointed in him but um, I am very surprised to hear you say Trey Butler I wasn't expecting that to be honest with you is that is that do you agree with that assessment? Do I do agree with that assessment. <laughs> um, I've been on the trade Butler bandwagon for at least twelve months now. So, um, I look, I've, I've fully understood anyone that wants to keep Butler, and I've, I've even argued myself that keeping Butler isn't a bad decision. But uh, I'm on the 
on the uh, on the rebuild bandwagon um, because of how good LeBron and Golden State are. Because I don't think the Bulls have many assets around Butler to to really put together a good team with around him during his prime years. So I'm I'm on the trade Butler bandwagon. And I'm very surprised that this early in the podcast we've been able to agree on something for it. It's it's um yeah it's it's amazing. Well, <laughs> well one more point. I mean even if they decide not to trade him, I don't want it to seem like I'm going to be in full fledged depression. I just feel it's going to be harder. I, I know I, I kind of had the banana boat uh, that you called me out on. Like, <laughs> hey, let's bring in let's bring in Chris Paul. Yeah. And then I saw the interview with Big Baby talking about uh, I don't know if you saw this on the Area Twenty One with Kevin Garnett. Yeah. Where he um, he was talking about Rondo, like he would go through a wall for Rondo, but Chris Paul he had a hard time sending a pick for him because he disliked him so much. Mm. That kind of thing goes a long way with me. Like. Okay. Uh, I, you know, playing basketball in high school and playing, you know, semi uh, competitive basketball throughout college. And after that, there are guys that people just naturally follow who make teams better. And uh, it's really hard to find statistics to show that. But um, that's a lot to me just seeing that. And I, I even heard an interview with Nico where he called Rondo his second favorite player that he's ever played with outside of Gasol. That really stuck with me too. So you're going to bring in a guy like, you know, Chris Paul, who's known to be a complete dick, you know, to a lot of his teammates, you know, it's not going to result in a championship. There's a reason why that guy's failed over and over again. And, um, you know, so anyhow, I, I, as far as like going forward, I, I really think that's probably the best way to go is, but I'm not going to go into full fledged depression. If we say, let's, let's build around Jimmy. And I also think Paxson, based on what he said, has kind of a similar thing viewpoint. I'm not just going to make a trade to make a trade. If I'm not going to get what I want in return, Jimmy is staying here. But if I feel a deal is good enough, I'll make it. And I, you know, from what I've heard in the inside people I've talked to, the Celtics had protections on that pick. Mm-hmm. They never once would have taken that protection off. Yeah. So I'm not about ready to trade Jimmy Butler for anything else without, unless it's a number one pick. Yeah, and look, that's a good point to make. So I'm, I definitely agree. So I'm on the trade Butler bandwagon, but I don't necessarily want to deal him just for just for anything, just for the sake of doing it. If it doesn't make sense, then it doesn't make sense. You, you have to be logical with these things. But um, look, I won't touch on the points that you made about Chris Paul because Chris Paul is my favorite player in the NBA. So I don't want to disagree with you after we just came to an agreement on something. So I'll ignore that one. And I'll, I'll instead, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll instead divert the discussion to one of the members of the Banana Boat team, or Team Banana Boat, and that's Dwayne Wade. Interested to get your take on um, on Wade's performance in his first seasons with the Bulls. You just mentioned that you you know preferably you'd like to see Butler dealt, so maybe this will be an interesting answer as well. But how did you think Wade performed in his first season, and, and do you want him to opt into his deal for for next season? All right, well, so this kind of brings up a bigger issue. I think as a fan base, mm-hmm. um, we really need to step back and stop hating on these guys that have come in as free agents who maybe not have performed up to expectations. I saw it with Paul Gasol, who I, I personally really loved, and I know I was on an island by the time he left. <laughs> uh, but I thought it was a great signing. I thought he had a fantastic first year in Thibodeau's last year, and obviously he saw some decline in year two. But again, with Wade, I think we're seeing the same thing here from the fan base is that the hate on this guy is so overblown, overblown 
uh, it's not good. It's not good for us signing free agents in the future. And if we start developing this reputation as a city that, I mean, think about every major free agent we've signed in the last 10 years has, has ended in, oh, the fan base has basically hated them. I can't really think of many <laughs> other exceptions, but well, going you're back right. to Car- Carlos Boozer, to Paul Gasol, ben Wallace. to Dwayne Wade, Ben Wallace, everyone has ended with the fan base hating him going out of town. That doesn't, I mean, word gets out, right? I mean, yeah. it's a tough place to play. Uh, Dwayne Wade, let's take a step back. Average 29 minutes per game, 18.3 points, 3.8 assists, 4.5 boards. 80% from the free throw line, 31% from three. You like to see that one up. That's the only number I didn't like. He had averaged just under five free throw attempts a game, very underrated stat. In 30 minutes, averaging five free throw attempts per game is it's something that as Bulls fans we never focus on, but it's so valuable. You saw it this year. That covers up a lot of warts when you don't have shooting is the ability to get to the line. If Dwayne Wade was named Kirk Heinrich or Tony Snell and he put up those numbers, we'd be writing poems about the guy. We'd, we'd be putting up a statue for him. Uh, 18 <laughs> points a game, 3.8 three, 3. assists, 4.5 boards. He had a good year. Was it great? No. Did he play defense fantastic? No. 1,700 minutes total. I'd like to see him oh, at least over 2,000, somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500. But did the young guys uh, you know, see a guy uh, – uh, how to how to you learn things like how to react to the media, how to take care of your body. Everything I've read from Butler was saying how much he loved playing with him, how much he learned from him. Uh, so I think there's things that were valuable that you got from him. And also, when you get a star of his level to sign with you, it does, I think, uh, significantly improve your chances of getting other great players. So I, I, I am not negative on Dwayne. And not only that, off the court, the guy's just a stellar human being. He does a ton for the community. He's, he's continuing to bring back to the community. Uh, and to treat him like he's a, some kind of you know bum is absolutely asinine. And I thought in the playoffs, he, fin- he put the dagger in the Celtics in game two. It was absolutely great down the stretch in that game on the offensive end. Mm-hmm. And in game five, I thought he had a really rock side. He's the only guy who really showed up. Game six, disaster. No denying that. It was awful. Yeah. Uh, but you know, he showed some moments and stepping up and, 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 uh, I really feel that next year, I think, I hope he surprises a lot of people and comes out and just has a, has a killer year. I mean, he's, he's getting old, right? Obviously. But, uh, as far as picking up his then, option, eh? well, like if, I mean, if the, if, if uh, let's assume the bulls do what you want them to do and, and to deal Butler, do you want him back in that scenario or is it probably, probably not okay. probably if they deal Butler? I don't, I probably don't want him back. Right. Okay. I, but he's, I, I look. I'd be shocked if he doesn't pick up that option. The only thing I could potentially see is him going to Miami and bringing Chris Paul with him or, you know, figuring out a way to get that done going back there. But I'd be shocked if he doesn't come back. I really would be. So am I going to be depressed if he picks up his option? No, as Bulls fans, we shouldn't be depressed if he picks up his option. He's still a great human being. He's still a good leader and he still can win games for us. And, and I, I, I'm not, if, if, if we trade Butler, I still think Dwayne Wade, I still think you need veterans on your team to show what it takes to win. And I think there's value in that. The Bulls were so young uh, from 2000 and 2001, and their veterans sucked that I think it really hindered the growth of guys like Curry and Chandler Mm -hmm. uh, then. So you need to have good veterans that are still productive. And uh, Dwayne Wade's a productive player. What say you? I'd like to get your opinion. I, I think it's going to be the exact opposite, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, 
Look, I, I can't argue with a lot of things that you mentioned there uh, in terms of the reverence that follows Wade. He's obviously, he's a Hall of Famer. He's, he's won three titles, one of the best players to ever play the game. So there is something that comes with Wade that just doesn't come with, you know, you run in the mill shooting guard that may produce better than he does. Um, so I, I fully understand that he's one of the best players to ever play the game. And he's probably the biggest free agent the Bulls have ever signed. So again, that carries some value as well. But do I want him back? No, I don't. Um, I don't want him opting into that deal. The, the salary cap's $101 million next year. Wade's effectively going to be earning $24 million, which is, let's just call it 25% of the cap. Based on his production last season, carrying that forward to what to the type of player expecting to be moving forward, that's just way too much money to be earning for a guy that's going to produce nowhere near what you need for someone to be. Well, he's earning the money of your best player, so and he's not the best player. He's he's he, he's he's a bench player at this point, in my opinion. He's um he's Manu Ginobili, or that should be his role at least. But um, so I don't necessarily Good want. Him, I, I don't want him opting into that deal because it's just it's just too much money. If it was a twelve million dollar deal, I'd have no problem with it. But for twenty four million, given the holes that the Bulls have and all over the all over the roster, it's just a it's an amount I'm not willing to deal with. Pretty much, that's my position on Wade. What free agent mm-hmm. with that money would you like to see them go after? Twenty four million. To, to, you know, with, with that money, yeah. you know, allocating until the resources. Because I'd like to get your opinion. I'd love to hear who you think they should take that money. Let's say he opts out. Yeah. Who would they go after? Well, I mean, it, it should really, they go after? It really depends on what they what they do with Rondo and what they do with Miritich. Because if Wade leaves, then you've got obviously got you've got an issue at shooting guard. But if you if Wade leaves and Rondo leaves and Miritich isn't brought back, then all of a sudden you've got three problems. And Miritich and Rondo don't have huge salaries. They're manageable contracts, I think, um, to the point where you start talking about, you know, for roughly fifty million in terms of money that's been taken off the books. But you've got fifty million now that you need to sign for not only those three starters, but also bench guys as well. So that that becomes a problem. So it really depends on who else leaves. But um, if Wade was to go, it does it does put the Bulls in a bit in a better cap position. Players I'd be interested in. Are probably more so point guards, um, but if Rondo if Rondo stays, that doesn't necessarily make sense. So I'll, I was really interested in uh, Drew Holiday, Patty Mills. These are the type of point guards that I think <clears throat> make sense next to Jimmy Butler. I think if, if you're keeping Butler, that makes sense. Um, if Miritich leaves, then you're going to you're going to need some big free agent dollars to to lure back a power forward of note. Um, whether that's someone like Serge Ibaka or potentially Paul Millsap, you're going to need a lot of cap space for that to get done. So it's kind of it's kind of difficult to say who do you replace Wade with when there's kind of a, a few other holes there as well. So uh, I think yeah, that's part a, of the critique good, that the Bulls have. It's a good point, like though, to bring up in that I never have problems with one or two year deals. Like, mm. were the Bulls better off signing Dwayne Wade, or were they better? Off, would they have been better off signing Harrison Barnes for ninety four stinking million dollars? Yeah. Or, or look at all the contracts signed this past offseason. Evan Turner. Mm-hmm. Um, just think of the bum contracts that uh, Mahini that now are stuck at. No, even Noah. Oh, look damn. at Noah's contract. 
And, and it dang, exactly. Uh, you can go up and down the list. Chandler Parsons, up and down the list at all these huge contracts, four or five years that were given out. And I really felt like there was not one guy where I lost sleep about, like, oh, my God, we should have got him. I mean, other than Durant, right? But the, who, no team really had a realistic shot at getting him. Mm-hmm. I was fine. I am always, I'm always, I never lose sleep over one or two year deals. And I thought that's why I had no problem with the Dwayne Wade Rondo deal. Uh, because the Bulls are trying to figure out, you know, how good are these young guys? And I do think you need good veterans in place. And Rondo worked out great, whatever you feel about him for these young, younger players. Look, I, I think, I think most people would have been comfortable with one of Rondo and Wade. Um, if it was just one of them on that, you know, one year slash two year deal, depending on what happens with that option. I think most fans would have been fine with that. But the minute they became a combination and it was a deal of Rondo and Wade next to Butler, that's what really set off people. So that's when the problems really began. But 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 why? Because I, it just I never understood fit. that. Does, it doesn't but why fit. doesn't it fit? Well, I you, think it fits great. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, why doesn't it fit? The, well, the big reason is because everybody throws out there is because, you know, well, the shooting. Exactly. Rondo was our best three-point shooter. He was the best three-point shooter in terms of percentage, but the guy's taking two to three threes a game. That's that's meaningless. But the last year for Sacramento was the most attempts he's had. Yeah. I don't I don't have the stats in front of me, and he shot it like a thirty-six percent rate. So one hundred seven percent in limited minutes. I I have no problem with bringing in a guy who's shooting thirty-six, thirty-seven percent from three-point range at the point guard position, and I don't feel like it was such a. Uh, unnatural fit i do understand it would have been better off and you saw that result if nico shot better from three you do have to have shooting in that lineup no doubt about it no doubt about it you need it from some position but rondo is i think people still look at him like he's some horrific three-point shooter he's not again uh, sa- his last year in sacramento was solid and this year he was solid although the playoffs were a disaster for the first two games but you know they still won those games right and I didn't think it was as bad of a fit as everybody did, but I, I know I'm out on an island on that one. Yeah, well, look, here's the thing with that, Fred. So Rondo shot well in terms of percentage, 36 37% last year. Sim- same thing this year. So he's, he's clearly improved his shooting, 36 30, 37%. That's roughly around league average. So you can point to that and say Rondo has improved. He's not a bad three-point shooter anymore, which to a degree is true. But the thing you have to consider is do defenses guard him like a 36 or 37% three-point shooter? And, and I would say no. They leave, him, they, leave him, point. they leave him wide open, dead open. So his percentages hopefully will increase because he's got four to six yards or feet on his uh, opponent there. So if, if, your defense, if the defense isn't guarding Rondo like a shooter, then it's a problem. Now, if they were guarding him like a respected shooter, then okay, then that makes some sense and the issues with Wade and Rondo become less of, less of a predicament. But because teams don't really guard Wade and Rondo for their shooting, they, they'll, they'll uh, step off Butler as well. He can go hot and cold. That's why it was problematic. But um, look, we've diverted into my, into my next yeah. question, which was around Rondo. And it was a similar question to the one that I posed to you about Dwayne Wade. But based on what you've already said, it sounds like you thought Rondo was a, was a positive and I'm assuming you want him to come back next season. Am I reading into that correctly? Again, I kind of feel the same way about him with as I do about Wade. If, if he doesn't come back, well, number one, it, it, that would mean the Bulls would have, uh, you know, basically not pick up his option and 
they better sure as heck have better options at the point guard position because the delta was pretty clear from him and and the young guys, yeah. uh, which I you know, had a uh, just an op- absolutely awesome opportunity, Grant and MCW to show up and even pain to a lesser extent, and they just you know wet the bed. It was an embarrassment. Um, the, the thing about Rondo is I, I never understood the hate that the guy clearly is hated by the fan base. And I, and it, when he signed and I, I never understood it. I, I, the thing about Rondo that I was really, uh, the, the one I love everybody throws out. Well, he, I, I, well, he led the league in assists last year. Those were meaningless assists. Well, what kind of argument is that? I mean, he's playing on NBA court and in meaningless assists, no assist is meaningless. If he's looking for an assist, that's good for the team. He's building up the confidence of a teammate and you saw that in the comments of Nico. Nico played great when when Rondo was the starting point guard out there, and they were put together at the end of the year. Uh, when Portis went to play for Windy City Bulls, I live out right by that stadium, and I talked to a couple of people who said they couldn't believe it, but Rondo showed up. That's a very difficult drive. It's like an hour and a half, and he takes his time out on a Friday night to go support Bobby Portis. What does that say about the kid? Kid's got an excellent work ethic, uh, Rondo, um, and, and his reputation is definitely not deserved, right? I think he has obviously some problems in Dallas. He obviously had some problems in Sacramento. But big picture, I think the guy wants to win. He's got an excellent work ethic, and I've heard nothing but good things about him. Yeah, he threw the towel, uh, and, and uh, that, that kind of stuff happens sometimes in the, in, when you're in the, the heat of battle. But uh, I, I won't lose sleep if he comes back. In fact, I think he's very good for the younger kids. He does an excellent job, especially if, if Nico comes back. If Nico comes back, I want Rondo back. If Nico mm-hmm. comes back and he's not on the team, that's going to hurt Nico's development. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting point. Uh, and, and look, I don't think any Bulls fan can deny that Rondo exceeded expectations. I think that's fair to say. I, I was a very staunch critic of when the ball signed him. <laughs> I, he just doesn't fit the modern NBA at all, at all and that bothers me, obviously. Um, but I will say, Rondo definitely grew on me as the season progressed. I think around February or so, let's just call it there, his, his game definitely improved. It became very clear that he was the best point guard on the Bulls team, and for whatever reason, maybe it's because he wanted that option picked up and, and wanted that wanted to uh, have that thirteen or fourteen million dollars guaranteed for next season. But his his play really took off, and he was really good for the Bulls. And we obviously saw what he did what he did in Game Two of of the playoffs against Boston. But um, look, I'll, I'll yeah, say to that, to that point, I did want to jump in really yeah. quick. That was Fred Hoiberg's uh, shining moment as a coach. I felt in Game Two, uh, the Bulls started utilizing. Rondo at the top of the key in a post position with Thomas on him. And it was the only time in the series I really felt like that, all right, we're going to take advantage and take it to this guy. And they basically allowed him to basically kind of play it with his back to the basket at the post. Butler would bring it up and lob it over to him. And then he would just use his passing ability or driving ability to score. It was the best series, offensive series or offensive sets for the Bulls. I don't know who came up with it, if that was Fred, if that was Rondo. It was it was excellent, and yeah. when they lost him, it was, the Delta was just insane. Yeah. It was just insane. I mean, Grant was playing like a college player or a CBA player or a YMCA player. It was <laughs> horrific. Yeah, you could have took him off the dribble there, I reckon, Fred. Um, he was pretty 
It was pretty Indeed. bad. <laughs> it was bad. But look, I'll say this about Rondo, and, and maybe this will sum up the, the Rondo and, and Wade section that we've talked about. But if the Bulls are to retain Butler and they have to keep one of Wade or Rondo, I would prefer to keep Rondo than Wade. I would hope that Wade would opt out in that scenario, even though it's rem- uh, extremely remote. And I would go after a guy like, let's just call it JJ Redick. You put a shooter next to Rondo and Butler. You have Miritich as a shooter at power forward, and then you can keep Robert Lopez at center. Straight away, that lineup becomes more functional. It makes more sense. And then having Rondo at point guard becomes less egregious um, than what you have when you're pairing with Dwayne Wade. So that's probably the best way I can sum up how I feel about Rondo and Wade is I would prefer to keep Rondo than Wade which isn't something I thought I'd say 12 months ago. So you never know right. what can happen, I guess. All right, so let, let, let's move on to a, another player, um, a player that we've mentioned and, and a player that you've definitely been a, a staunch critic of. Um, and it's a player that I'm definitely a homer um, when it comes to this this player. So in, in, in this role, it's a bit of a role reversal. I'm the optimistic one here, whereas you get really, really negative about this guy. And, I, and I'm talking about Nikola Mirotic. He's a restricted free agent. He's going to be needing a new contract. Do you want the Bulls to bring him back, Fred? Tell me. Uh, I mean, I do if it's with the right amount of money. So what's the right this is another unfair. This is another unfair. Let's go a little bit in the history of Nico. Okay. It's another uh, uh, unfair characterization. Oh, of my I don't know about that. Nico. Don't know about that. <laughs> All right. I, uh, so the first year he comes into the league, yeah. I felt he had one good month. That was March. Mm-hmm. And he got to the line an incredible amount of time. Well, just like baseball, scouting reports start going around. And uh, that's where, if you look at his stats, were not that good as far as shooting metrics. He shot 40%, 31, 31.6% from three, which is yeah. horrific. And March, he was fantastic. Why? He scored a ton of points from the free throw line. Who, People who stopped falling. It was Tom Thibodeau. Oh, okay, okay. Tom Continue. Thibodeau. Continue. All right, okay. Well, this <laughs> very good, very good, because I'm. It leads right into my next point. Right. Okay. Um. So everybody was, uh, you know, singing the songs of Nico, and I was. If you go back to like some of the old shows back in those days, I was like, I am not seeing this guy. He's not going to do anything in the playoffs. That prediction was correct. He was horrific in the playoffs. Thirty percent from the field, twenty three percent from the um from three point line. Just absolutely her- terrible. And it wasn't his fault. He's a rookie. He just stopped getting those calls. That's what happens in the playoffs. Rookies don't get calls, and he, he didn't do anything else of value in the playoffs. The next season, Fred's first year, everybody soured on Nico, and I have no idea why. He was absolutely fantastic. He shot 39% from three, which is what I expect him to do, which is what I wanted him to do. And although he had appendicitis and people were too blind in their – anger about Thibodeau being fired and Fred being hired, Nico Miritich had an excellent season. And I felt like I was pumped up about Nico. Let's go into this season. And um, I was very frustrated with his play because he was the key to the team really fulfilling its potential. They lacked shooting. He was their best shooter, and he shot around 30% for the first six months from three. Uh, Nico has to – that's what he, he does best stretch the floor as a power forward to bring people out, clear lanes for Rondo, clear lanes for, for Butler, clear lanes for Wade. And he's out there shooting at 30% when he's primarily wide open. And I'm, I'm losing my mind with how bad that is. I mean, he had two, at one point of the year, he had 200 attempts. He was at 30%. Only guy in the, in the, with that many attempts uh, was, you know, Marcus Smart. Uh, just awful. And then March comes 
he gets another opportunity and he starts getting hot. And he brought that up to respectable, respectable 34.2. But, you know, some people might be listening, might be saying, well, 39%, 34.2. That's a massive, massive difference. Uh, you know, 42%, the best team in the league shoots at about that rate. Golden State, the worst team, shoots at about 31%, 32%. So 10 percentage points is a huge difference in three-point shooting. And that's his that's going to be his bread and butter in this league. Uh, I hear a lot of people say, well, they should use him in, 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 in other ways and in the post. I'm fine with that, but he's not good enough. He's, he just, I haven't seen it where I think he's good enough for him to, you know, totally restructure the offense around Nico Miritich. When it gets, when all is said and done, what does he got to do? He's got to hit that three. And, uh, that's where my greatest frustration was about him. And then, you know, the playoffs came and he sucked again. Um, so, I, I'm frustrated with the guy because he clearly has a ton of talent. He mm-hmm. clearly can be a great player. And I've said, number one, my biggest fault with him, number one, I don't think he's gained a pound of muscle since he's been in the league. Yep. He's always, to me, been kind of like a tweener. Like, is he a three? Is he a four? I could see him. I, I remember distinctly in his rookie year in March watching him in a game against Memphis at the stadium. I'm saying, I think this guy could play the three. I really think he's quick enough where I think he could play the three. And then, you know, realizing uh, upon a few months later, no, he's a four. And then so I'm like, well, you better bulk up, buddy. Does he look like he's gained one pound of muscle since he's been in the league? This guy needs to get stronger. And uh, I was very glad to hear Paxson make that statement at, at the, the season-ending press conference. So although you might think I'm a rabid Nico hater, I'm not. I'm frustrated because I feel he has he clearly has talent, but he's not. he's coming nowhere near to realizing that. What say you? I would I would agree with some of those points. Um, I definitely think he's a power forward. I think he definitely could be used in a more effective way. I think he's more of a scorer than a shooter. And since Hoiberg has been here with the Bulls, he's prim- primarily used him as a spot-up shooter, which I think is a problem. Miritich is one of those guys, for whatever reason, he's a confidence guy. He needs to see the ball go through the hoop. Um, whether that's at the free throw line, getting some buckets inside before his three-point shooting comes along. He also needs to have you know, some semblance of a guaranteed role. I think once he he knows that he's not going to get yanked for making a bad play here or there, that he just plays with more confidence. He's probably one of the most negative players I've ever seen in terms of getting on his, his own self. He's, he, he really, for whatever reason, just gets in his own head and just really takes away his own momentum. So I think that's something he, that's probably the thing he needs to work on most is his mental ability, his mental state in terms of just staying focused and believing in himself. Um, but look, I, look, even as a Miritich homer as, as I am, some of those points that you, you mentioned there ring true. He's an inconsistent player. His shooting was bad for most of the season. It really, really took off around February, March, which brought his numbers up to respectability. Um, but again, he was poor in the playoffs, like a lot of players were, but he was poor in the playoffs. So it does leave me questioning how good of a player he can be. I think he could be very good, extremely good, if he put it all together. But the question now is, will he put it all together? And given all that, and the fact that he's coming up for a new contract, it's it's difficult to find what that right number is for Miritich. So uh, what would you be comfortable in terms of paying Miritich? $13 million or less. Thirteen million, yes. How many? That's years? the number. I, yeah, that's the number I've come on, and and I, I I really do feel there's a team out there that's going to give him seventeen plus. Mm-hmm. And 
at that point, I'm like, adios. I just don't feel. I want him back. I really do. I think he, he is he is a good player, and I think he can. Uh, I'm hoping he'll develop like and, and and show a little bit more of that. I mean, God Almighty, if he can get back to that 39% from three, that is just exactly what this team needs. And um, but I'm not confident he'll do it. You know, so 13, 14, 15 would be pushing it. But if some team's going to give him. 17, 18, 19 for a five-year deal. Are you comfortable with that? Look, I'm definitely not comfortable with Miritich on 17, 18, 19 million. I think that's far too much. If we're talking 14, 15, then maybe I consider it. Um, Similar to you, my ideal state would be, you know, giving him a contract around the 11 or 12 million um, because he has been hot and cold. He's someone that could definitely exceed or his production could exceed that contract, but he's also someone that could regress and make that contract not look so great as well at $12 million, let's say, let alone seventeen. So, um, And we also need to remember as well that the Bulls were very close to trading him at the deadline. They were shopping him, and all of a sudden now they want to retain him. So it'll be interesting to see what their, what their price limit is. But for my personal, my personal opinion, anything greater than $14 or $15 million, um, yeah, I'll probably let him go at that stage as well, depending on the years. If we're talking three years, then I, then I, okay, I'll, I'll pony up fifteen million. But if it's a four-year, sixteen million dollar deal, let's call it. Um, that's something that gives me pause, even as a as a big Miritich fan. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the market dictates on Miritich. I think, we come yeah. we we come to agreement again. I, I know. have another topic. Mahimi, Mahimi got 16 that guy's a bum yeah he got 16.6 million next year he's going to be made how is nico not going to get at least that type of contract for four to five years at the age of you know is he 25 26 yeah he's He's going to get it he's going to get it you know so that's why i'm like uh, well i mean there's less teams uh, as as gar foreman keeps telling us there's going to be less teams with cap space um, the cap spike isn't going up he's right as as much as it was so there's going to be less teams with space, and they may be a bit more conservative given the bad contracts that were handed out last season. So maybe maybe we're overstating how much he will get, but um, look, time will tell. We'll know in two months' time. So look, I know I don't have you for too much longer, and I've got a few more questions, so let's try to get through these ones because um, there's a few questions here that I would like to get your opinion on. And the next one... Sounds good. The next one, I'm actually really intrigued to get your opinion on, because I'm pretty confident we're going to disagree on this one. And, and it relates to Denzel Valentine. And one of the tweets, one of your infamous tweets, which I constantly bring up, is your um, <laughs> your Denzel <laughs> Valentine tweet, comparing him, well, not necessarily comparing him, but saying he will be Paul Pierce-esque by his second year. And obviously, his second year is approaching next season, so... Convince me, Fred. Why? Why will Denzel <laughs> Valentine be Paul Pierce esque by year two? I do not like this guy. I don't think he's going to be a good player. I think he could be a, a decent end of the bench type guy, or maybe eighth or ninth guy at, at his peak. But he's twenty four, twenty four years old, and I constantly bring that up and tell people how old he is. But um, we appear to be <laughs> to at my odds great here. irritation. Yes. To my yes. Great, every time you tweet that out, I just. I get more and more pissed off. <laughs> so um, yeah. convince me on this guy. Why should I be buying stock on Denzel Valentine? All right. So number one, you're where he had off-season ankle surgery. Yes, yes. And we should mention that. Yep. Inside 
inside info. He, I think it was the second or first preseason game. He injured his ankle, really put him behind the eight ball. He, he just, that put him behind big time. And he, and, uh, I'm hoping that he's healthy. I don't think he was healthy for the vast majority of last year. He was basically relegated to a role of being a spot up three point shooter, which I thought he did very well at the end of the season. Um, but I call him the the PMPP, the poor man's Paul Pierce for a reason, because he has the unique ability with some players have and with some players don't of performing when the game is on the line. And he saw that in summer league and he saw that against Utah at various times during the year when he was given the opportunity to perform, uh, in, in pressure situations and not be afraid of the moment. And that's a, that's a very a rare trait. I think most players uh, are do, uh, uh, even great players like Carl Malone comes to mind, even Scotty Pippen to a lesser extent didn't perform their best when the game was on the line. And some players just have it. Tony Kukoc, Michael Jordan come to mind. I think Denzel Valentine has that ability of performing when the game's down, uh, down the stretch. Now you're concerned. He's not a great athlete for that. I'll agree. He's not an A plus athlete. I think he's better than most people give him credit for. But one thing he does have, which makes up for a lot of deficiencies in athleticism is length. Uh, Paul, guy like Paul Gasol comes to mind. Paul's not a great athlete anymore, but he still has length, and that's why he's a better, you know, rim defender and shot blocker than you know a guy like uh, you know, Felicio, who's much better athlete but not as long, and thus you know the numbers reflect that. I think Denzel can. He said they want him guarding point guards. I think he can provide some minutes at point guard and at the two guard. And the thing that he does have, which I saw when he played for Windy City, which I saw at the University of Michigan State, he has excellent court vision. He's a playmaker. And I saw the frustration in the postseason. I don't know if you saw those interviews where he said, what am I going to do, steal the ball from Jimmy? Mm-hmm. Kind of joking around. But he's yeah. he does have a point there where he's not – he wasn't given the chance. Jimmy is so ball dominant. And and I to my frustration sometimes where I think Jimmy has the ability to be a much better – uh, distributor and he, when he does it, I, I, I go crazy. But a lot of times I get frustrated where he holds the ball to five, six, seven down the shot clock and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't lead to improving the other players. So Denzel Valentine to me, excellent ability, court vision. I saw that at the WC, uh, Windy City game. One play came to mind where there just some players have the ability when they make a pass to, uh, see. There was one pass I remember he had from half court to the baseline. And he basically directed the guy to go get it. Um, and in the, the way he, most, most players would have thrown the ball directly at this guy who was standing in the corner. And he kind of led him. He, he forced him to move out of the corner towards the basket, which was the right move. I just think his court vision is excellent. And, uh, if he gets the ball in that situation, they start allowing him to do that, which they didn't at all last year. I think you'll see this guy become a very good player, but. I know for certain I'm alone on the island. Most people are like, you're nuts about this guy. I do feel he, he has the ability to be an excellent distributor of the, of the basketball. Look, I mean, some of those points that you brought up are true. He does have... All of them. <laughs> some of them. Some of them. Uh, I, I, do, I am concerned with his athletic ability and his lateral quickness. I think that takes away a lot of his strength, so his ability to put the, the ball on the floor, his ability to pass and, and create, that that is mitigated because of his lack of athleticism and defenders can really pressure him and take away those strengths. 
So that's my main concern with him. I think if he was a plus athlete, I would probably be sharing or singing the same praise that you are. But um, that's my main concern with Valentine. But look, what I will say, Fred, is I God hopeful that you are right on this and that I am wrong. Nothing would be uh, more satisfying to be wrong about Denzel Valentine in this case because uh, if we do keep Butler, we need a shooting guard, a long-term shooting guard next to him who can play make, who can shoot, who can do these sorts of things. And the player that Valentine projects to be would be a perfect fit next to Butler. So I'll just say, rather than getting killing the kid for having a, uh, a poor rookie season, I'll say, I hope you're right on this one. So... <laughs> But uh, right. we, we disagree on this. Let's, let's, but let's move forward. I know I don't have you for too much longer. Um, what, so what I, what, I, what I will get to, I'll get to this question because you may be on an island on this one as well. Um, you've said that a, a few times that you're on an island uh, for certain topics and takes that you've had. Give me your opinion on the front office. Um, I've got an, an inkling as to where you're headed with this question, but... Um, I'm assuming you're going to be on an island by the end of it. All right, so <laughs> uh, let's start out here. Let's start right. here. Uh, rank. Give me a- where would you? How would you say? I'd like to start out by asking you a question. Right. As far as talent evaluation, yeah, the Bulls. Do you think they're near the top, uh, near the middle, near the bottom? As far as when compared to other front offices. Well, it really depends when you're, uh, you know, what period of the Bulls front office that you're talking about. If we're talking 2003 to maybe 2011, mm-hmm. maybe top five, roughly, without thinking about it too, you know, without putting too much brain energy into it, they were towards the top of the end of the league. They were brilliant. Uh, they didn't have a ton of a ton of top picks in terms of first, second, third picks between say 2004 to 2011. They had a lot of picks in the in the you know, towards the back end of the lottery and obviously when they started to get a little bit better in, in you know, the ranges of 15 to 26, let's call it. They made a lot of good picks throughout that period. Um, you know, getting Taj Gibson at 26, obviously Jimmy Butler at 30. Uh, Miritich was picked at 23. They got Ash- Ashik late in, in, the, um, in the draft as well. Obviously, they got Derek Rose at number one, but, um, you know, even players like Kirk Heinrich, Joakim Noah, Lol Deng, they weren't necessarily the top picks in their draft, but they became extremely serviceable players for the Bulls. So in that instance, I would say they were very good. But post-2011, completely different story. So how do you rate them? Well, it depends how you break it up, I guess. I think in the last three to four years, they're towards the bottom end of the league. Um, I think you could make an argument that Paul Zipser has probably been one of, one of, their, one of their better picks, and he was a second-round pick, so... It really depends mm-hmm. on what period you want to what you want to grade the Bulls on, but um, at the moment, on recent trends, they're definitely one of the I'd call them bottom ten at least. Yeah. So, all right. First thing we got to do is recognize that the Bulls, unfortunately, with the Derrick Rose injury, were kind of forced into a situation that no other team in the NBA really was. Right. That, yes, that the fair. collective bargaining ag- agreement that Derrick signed allowed for basically thirty percent of the cap to be. Allocated to Derek's salary. Mm-hmm. Only two other players signed that agreement. One was Blake Griffin. Uh, no coincidence, a guy who's injured often. His his franchise had a lot of disappointment. They didn't even get to a Western Conference final. And the other one was Paul George. Um, so what happens when he signs that contract? He tears up his knee, misses the entire subsequent season, misses 
only plays 11 games of the following season. And so I think a lot of just the state right away from 2012 to present day, no front office. They're basically dealt 30% of their salary cap was allocated to Derrick Rose. You know, you're, you're under, you're playing, uh, handed a very difficult situation. No one else had to deal with. So yeah, well, let's fair. look at talent, talent, eval- talent evaluation. The last t- two top 10 picks they had, Jakeem Noah, I think we all agree, at number nine was a home run. Mm-hmm. And Derrick Rose at number one, a yep. home run. Uh, and people, all again, try to rewrite history. Derrick Rose, oh, that was an easy pick. No, it actually wasn't. Uh, I'd say 50% of the city, maybe slightly less than that, was all for drafting Beasley because we already had a point guard in Kirk Heinrich. They don't get enough credit for that, like, I think that pick could have easily gone to Beasley. Um, and at that time, living in the city, I listened to a lot of people calling up demanding, hey, is our chance to finally get that perimeter score? Yeah. Taj Gibson the following year, 26, fantastic pick mm-hmm. that you'll you rarely see at 26. James Johnson was also drafted in that pick, yeah. still a good player in the NBA. So, you know, why do I bring this up? Who would you say is the best front office? Right, right now? Yeah, in general, in the last 10 years, the last 20 years, most oh. people would say Spurs. who? San Antonio Exactly. Yeah. Do you know who Nikola Moltenov is, Kyle Anderson, and Livio Jean Charles? Dude. Those were the three three number one picks by the Spurs from 2013 to 2015. Yeah. They, nobody knows them because they suck. The Spurs, <laughs> every, every team, no matter what front office, has misses. The Bulls have had fewer misses. The Bulls have drafted better in the 20s and Nico Miritich, Taj Gibson, and Jimmy Butler than the Minnesota Timberwolves have drafted in the last 14 years in the lottery every year. Most front offices with number 30, Jimmy Butler at number 30, that pick alone would decide that's arguably the best pick in the last 10 years by any front office with the possible exception of Draymond Green. And everybody brings that up. Well, Golden State didn't even believe in Draymond Green. He was their third pick that, in that draft. So I, I'm just bringing this up to say drafting is an inexact science. It's very difficult. And I think the Bulls have done a, an excellent job of drafting overall. Not true. How have they done lately since 2012? Everybody likes to bring up um, – I, I, thank God I brought this up. But Marquise Teague. <laughs> Marquise Teague was a forced pick. They had to draft a backup point guard with Rose. But number one, he was the 29th pick. There hasn't been a 29th pick in the draft since Marquise Teague, who's currently on an NBA roster. If a guy makes it on your team at 29, that's rare. That's extremely rare. Do you know the last 29th pick to make the NBA who's on a current roster? It's it's Joseph, Curtis Joe, um, Corey Joseph, who's currently on the Raptors. He's picked by the Spurs. DeJounte Murray from the Spurs, who we mentioned before. Was the 29th oh. pick from last last season, and Good he's point. he's currently playing, currently playing, and he's doing playing very serviceably for the Spurs. But I understand your point. I that's understand your that's point. debatable. But he is oh. he is playing. Good point. That is debatable. That is debatable. It's serviceable. But he, I, he is very I will agree with you. He's go very on, but go on, go on. You make good point. point. But before that, before that, none of those players are on any roster. And the last one before him was Corey Joseph, and the pick after that, Jimmy Butler. So I just think it's such an inexact science that they get ham and they get constantly hammered and maybe rightly so in a McDermott, right? But McDermott, is he really a bust? He's not a bust. He's not Johnny Flynn. 
He's still in the NBA. I think that overall they made excellent picks. Bobby Portis at 22. Is that a bust? Is that a terrible pick? I think we're a long way from making that assessment. Don't you agree? Bobby Portis showed signs to me last year. Um, I thought Bobby Portis at 22 is about as good as you're going to get. And I'm seeing signs that that kid's coming around. So Tony Snell, is that a terrible pick? Is it, is it, you know, did he really develop here under Tibbs? No, he didn't develop, but he's looking pretty good in, in, you know, at where he was picked in that draft. I, I, you still got to say, gosh, these guys aren't terrible. These aren't total busts. Um, you know, outside of Marquise Teague, he's the only guy in the first round that you just like, wow, what the heck were they thinking? You know, so I, 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 I will say, uh, you know, I do understand the frustration about McDermott. I mean, he did not progress as a player like I expected. Um, he did under Tibbs. He was, he was totally lost in his first year under Fred. He went to top 10 in the league from three point percentage. So he did show some signs right there. That's an extremely valuable skill, extremely valuable skill set. But this past year, I'm, I was like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? I mean, it was, it was like, it was unbelievable how he regressed. And I know he had an injury. Maybe that affected him, but I won't deny he is a source of frustration and, and, He's a major blemish when you consider Gary Harris and what they gave up to get him. No doubt there. But that's the only draft I fault him with greatly. So we've talked about the draft, but that's only one component of the the responsibilities of the front office. We've obviously got trades. We've got free agency um, in terms of team building, but you've also got aspects like how they how they handle themselves to the media, how they make themselves available to the media, their, just their general positioning of the franchise moving forward, these sorts of things. There are other variables that I want to get your take on. And, and again, I know you've got to shoot off shortly, so maybe, maybe wrap it up, but, um, in, in as quick as you, you know, as quick as you can, but, cause it is a, it is a, it is a difficult topic and it's a diverse topic, but we've obviously discussed the draft there. And I think you made some valid points, particularly on, on the picks taken, let's call it prior to Jimmy Butler or Jimmy Butler and prior, but what about all the other aspects of the front office? Where, where do you stand on those sorts of things? Um, I, I, they get criticized for things that I, I just laugh about. Like, for example, Kyle Korver. This one's coming up again. Mm-hmm. The Bulls did not want to trade Kyle Korver. They did not want to lose Kyle Korver. What happened? Derek Rose's knee blew up, and they had to bring up. They had to bring in a capable point guard. In order to do that, Kyle Korver had to go because they still had to pay Taj Gibson, who was subsequently paid. They brought in. Um, Kirk Heinrich, I think you're a big fan. I wasn't. I'm not a big fan of Kirk Heinrich. And they brought in a poor man's Kyle Korver and Marco Bellinelli. They did the best with the situation. They had no choice. They were already – Derrick Rose was taking up 30% of the salary cap. Noah had a massive contract. Boozer Boozer had a massive contract. Dang was getting paid. What did you expect? To sign the guy for $10 It's a cap. At the hard cap, they were at two. And yet, now people are acting like, oh, they just gave him away for nothing. It, it's, it's ridiculous it, looking in, in retrospect at that one. They get heat for that. Luol Dang, they still get heat for that. Luol Dang was traded at the earliest possible moment. What happened? Derek blow, knee blows up. Luol Dang's on the team. The next season, everyone expected Luol Dang, uh, expected Derek to come back. The Bulls made a, a, a fantastic year. They, they got to the second round of the playoffs and, and, um, without Derek coming back, are you going to trade Luol Dang in that offseason when you don't know how good Derek is yet? 
Really? That's not going to happen. I mean, can you imagine how they would have got hammered if they traded him in that offseason when you don't even know if Derek's at an MVP level? Uh, and plus, think about how Tibbs loved uh, – he went into a depression when they traded him. <laughs> what happened? They traded him in the following year after Derek blew out his knee after 11 games. They traded him at the earliest possible moment. Th- this front office gets hammered for moves – that they were forced into, they had no choice to do, and I, and I what what I heard, I think you criticized him for the Kyle Korver trade. I think I saw you tweet about that. Always. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't happy about it either. I was furious about it too. But I understand why they had to. You got to have a point guard on the roster. I look, I understand I mean, the premise, but the the return was terrible. Yeah, I, the return exactly was terrible. Exactly, but you know what? The, their head. That's the issue. Their head coach didn't believe in him either. I mean, he was playing 20 minutes behind bums like Keith Bogans. And I don't want to get into that because it's just so depressing when I think <laughs> about it. Um, do you want to get into that topic? Because oh, that's it's coming. It's coming. More. It's coming. <laughs> Let's get into that one. <laughs> well, look, I think a lot. Look, I'll say this. Uh, your position on the front office for a lot of the things you mentioned is correct. But we're talking about a period where the front office were largely seen as a respectable, good front office. So we're, we're talking about periods, say, let's 2007 to 2013. Through that period, that was strong. But you didn't really mention periods thereafter, so 2015, 2016, and 2017. That's when they've really started to drop the ball. And whether that's been a coincidence with with uh, Paxson sort of laying in the shadows and allowing Gar Foreman to do some things, whether it's purely on the Derrick Rose injury, whether there's other factors that we're not considering, there's been a clear trend that the Bulls are, uh, are working themselves or they're, they're declining in terms of a front office. I, I think you can agree with me on that, that their, their efforts the last two to three seasons have been, haven't been good. Let's put it that way. Surely I, you can I agree would, with that. I would, I would, I would say that 2000, the first year, I thought the 2000, the Tibbs last year, mm-hmm. that team was a very good team. I thought, team. I thought Gasol was uh, excellent that season. And I thought the team uh, gave up in the playoffs against the Cavs. They, let's, let's not forget they got to the second round. They did. And they lost to a very, very good Cavs team. Um, you know, was it disappointing? Yeah, they were, you know, but I was very disappointed how they went out. Um, but again, I felt like there were, aspects of a team that were underutilized i thought mcdermott should have had more time and i thought playing gasol the amount of minutes that he did that season was absolutely insane and uh even butler i i mean that i thought their coach had run his course at that point you disagree i don't disagree i think thibodeau i was on the i was of the opinion that thibodeau needed to to go um, because clearly the players were no longer responding to him, as we can see in Game 6 of the playoffs. Um, and further to that, and probably more importantly, there was clear friction between Thibodeau and the front office, which is another point I think that we need to realize when we're talking sure. about having these front office discussions. They effectively ran Thibodeau out of town, which... But, you know, but, he, but why he, was there friction? Why look, was there friction? He, he deserves his blame in that in that relationship falling apart as well. Thibodeau isn't blameless in that sense. But at the same time, the front office, they meddled with Thibodeau and his staff. They got rid of Ron Adams, which we don't talk about nearly enough. Ron, Ron Adams has been instrumental with the Golden State Warriors um, in his role 
uh, as an assistant coach there, the defensive head coach. So that's something as well that we need to factor in with this whole front office discussion. Um, but Fair look, enough. Look, let's move on. And look, we've, we've been going near on an hour here. So let, let's, let's sort of begin to wrap it up. And what I want to do now, Fred, is I want to throw a few topics at you, some general, some general names, some general topics. And I want to get your response on these because I'm tipping, at least of the, the questions that I've posed. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can come to some sort of agreement, but I'm not necessarily confident about that. So uh, we, we mentioned tips, and it's a topic that you and I always get into on Twitter, probably more so than anything else. But my question to you is, or my, my statement to you is, Tim, uh, Tom Thibodeau was a great coach, and the franchise has gone backwards ever since he left. Do you agree or not? I don't agree. I don't agree. <laughs> I don't. I, I. I think he was a great coach in some aspects, but the reason the franchise has gone backwards, Tom Thibodeau could not have prevented that. Like, I don't agree. I felt like Thibodeau sacrificed player health for regular season wins, and I think that's insanely stupid. Um, my biggest problem with Thibodeau started. Let's go back to the first year. I saw it then, and it still it drove me nuts. His entire tenure here. And I think big picture, that's the reason why he's not coaching here anymore is uh, Boozer hurt his hand. He misses the first two months. And I remember a game, I think it was against the 76ers. The Bulls were up 40, like 40 or 30, some insane amount in the fourth quarter. And he's got him playing in the fourth quarter. A guy with an injury history like Carlos Boozer, why are you playing him in the fourth quarter of a blowout game? And he continued to do it over and over again. Luol Dang, in the, in the strike short, shortened year of 2011 and 12, uh, led the league in minutes per game. He had, as a backup that year, Kyle Korver. He had uh, Ronnie Brewer and a rookie in Jimmy Butler. I think you can look up and down for 20 years and you won't find three better candidates to get the guy some rest, yet he still led the stinking league in minutes per game. It's absolutely insane. And then what he did to Jakeem Noah in the 2000. 12, 13, 14 season. I can't remember exactly what year it was, but I always point to this in the numbers of December as a center playing 40 plus minutes a game. I mean, it's just, I, I think, and then in game 60, he goes out with knee and foot problems and everybody's like, oh, bad luck for Tibbs. He's responsible for that. He's partly responsible. You don't play a center 40 plus minutes and back to backs in December. Are you nuts? Like, that, like that's my biggest frustration about it. Every study has shown this, and we've gone back and forth on Twitter on this. And I think now it's come to the point where the whole league knows it. To I mean, what did we talk about as as the season went down? Rest. Everybody needs to rest. Everybody, you know, the the Nets rested all their players. Thibodeau played Towns forty minutes and thirty seven to end the season in the quest for thirty two wins. Do you know how stupid? How uh, to 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 risk. Carl Anthony Towns' health for what? For what? Do you know how furious his agent was about that? I'm not going to get into this, but uh, I, I, I know for certain if you had his agent at a bar, he's not going to say it on national TV. Carl Anthony Towns hasn't been paid yet. He's making like him and Wiggins made a combined 11 million this year. They were the only two guys in the whole league to play over 3,000 minutes. Like the whole league understands the importance of rest besides this guy. And that's what the biggest problem was. When you get down to it all, you can bring up Rod Adams. You can bring up all these guys. The fact is they didn't agree with the way he was playing 
the amount of minutes he was playing these guys. They wanted him to rest more. That was their major disagreement. And no one seems to, I'm like in bizarro world here. The front office was right. This was a major issue that he could never get his handle on. I was so sick of every year us limping into the playoffs hurt. Guys were tired. It, it happened every year. Um, and I, I mean, that's my biggest problem with Thibodeau. I, as far as like preparation, as far as smarts, as far as the defensive coach, I agree with you. Second to none. The guy's fantastic. Um, I don't think offensively he's a wizard and I don't feel like he's, uh, you know, brilliant as far as, um, in a playoffs because I think he just feels like do your job and do it again and again. And he's not excellent in making changes. I saw that in a Milwaukee series, um, in 2015. Uh, but, um, you know, I, what say you? Do you disagree with what the points I made? Do you agree with the way he continues to play these guys, excessive minutes, or so look, am I? What what I would say is I, the way he handled Noah in twenty fourteen was poor, particularly towards the end of the season. I, I'll 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 agree with you there, but where I disagree with you is um, in, in relation to the way he's treating Towns at the moment. Not necessarily the way he's treating Towns, but the way you position your argument on that. And what I mean by that is, Carl Anthony Towns played 37 minutes last season, which is, for me, excessive for a big man. I'll agree with you on that. But where where we start to disagree, Fred, is when you focus purely on Carl Anthony Towns and what Tom Thibodeau is doing and not what other coaches are doing with their big men. So, so as an example, Anthony Davis played 36.1 minutes last season he's not necessarily uh i think what you could say about anthony davis is he's not necessarily a traditional big man he's not in like joe keem knowing the sense that he's playing 100 percent of his minutes at center but he played a large chunk of his minutes at center and it was only less than one minute um played versus carl anthony towns so my point is if you're going to go at thibodeau for playing towns too much then you need to do the same for gentry for playing davis too much Okay, so that, that that's one point I'd make. Around Fair Jimmy enough. Butler, Tibbs killed Jimmy Butler. He played him as excessive minutes. He did the same thing with Lowell Deng. So Jimmy Butler in 2015, Thibodeau's last season, he averaged 38.7 minutes per game, which led the league. Okay, that's excessive. I'll agree with you there. But similar point, um, there, there are other players at the moment that are averaging those sorts of minutes, even as the league has progressed to the point where rest needs to be had. The guy that led the league in the league, uh, in minutes this season was LeBron James. He was playing 38 minutes a game. So if we're going to kill Thibodeau for playing Jimmy Butler too many minutes, then we need to we need to kill Tyron Lue for playing LeBron James too many minutes. If we're going to kill Thibodeau for playing Butler 38.7 minutes a game, we need to get on Fred Hoiberg as well for playing Jimmy Butler 37 minutes a game. Is that is that difference of one point seven minutes per game enough to to let it slide for Fred Hoiberg, but to kill Tom Thibodeau? I guess that's where well, we disagree. I guess the difference, well, the difference comes into there's not a coach in the league. Uh, you say what you want about Tyrone Lou, LeBron didn't play the last few games of the season. There's yes. not a coach in the league that w- would have played Towns forty minutes in the second to last back to back to end the season and thirty seven. There's just not one coach. You can't tell me Fred Hoiberg would have done it. No one would have done that. I think we yet he did it. Why yeah. why why would you risk 
an ACL injury on a player that's so important, what was he learning that, that, that outweighs the injury risks there? He wasn't learning anything. And I'm not just talking like, I'll point to game six against, or it was game five against Milwaukee in the 2005, uh, 2015 playoffs. The Bulls were up 30 plus points. He had no out in the court in the fourth quarter. I mean, that, yeah. that's the point where I, I, I said he's dead to me now. Like I, at that point, I said, this guy, I've had it. I've just had it. Like you, you have a guy in Joaquin Noah can barely walk. We had injury issues all year and you got him playing in a, in a, in a playoff game that you're up 30 plus. Like what it's, it's just so mind numbingly stupid. I compare it to like, uh, you, you meet a great girl. She's fantastic. She's everything you ever wanted. Great personality, beautiful, but her breast stinks. <laughs> and eventually, eventually you can't, and you try to talk, you try to say, Hey, listen, why don't you get some, do something about your breath? And every time you bring it up, she starts going into, uh, uh, you know, a fit and starts crying. How could you say that? You know, to the point where eventually you got to break up because you cannot be within three feet of this girl. That's what I think about when I think about Tom Thibodeau. It's like, this issue is so important and so uh, to, to, I, I really feel like you put, you're putting wins ahead of the health, the long-term health of your player. And that, that really bothers me. It really does. Like, that's why I, I don't have a ton of number one. I don't think he's like a great guy. Like I, I've, I've heard like, you know, when he left, it wasn't like the whole organization was like crying. He's just, People like act like, uh, oh, that's all he cares about is basketball. He doesn't care about anything else. Like that's a good thing. I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think that's something that should be celebrated. I think that's a problem. I think that's a sign of a, a personality disorder. That said, I still respect this work ethic. Um, and he, there's no doubt he's smart, but give me a break. Like really, like it, it, would any of us want to work for a guy like that? Like that just cares about, it doesn't see, you know, hey, the answer to everything is work harder. It's it's not always the answer to everything. And I know you love them. And I know this is the most unpopular. I, I know a lot of people hate me for this viewpoint because I brought it up many times on Waddle and Sylvie and people say, see red Fred. And you know, <laughs> this is, this is the point where people diverge and say, this guy sucks because he is beloved in the city. Yeah. But the bulls were 21 and 12 when all in Fred's first year, and Noah goes down and Butler goes down. They, they were hit with a barrage of injuries that Thibodeau never dealt with. That's another misconception. Like Thibodeau, oh, had to deal with all those injuries. He dealt with Rose injuries. Yeah, of course. And Dang, Dang Did, got hurt through the time. No, 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 Don no, Levy. no, no. That's not a true, that's not a true statement. Come on. Dang was, Dang was hurt every five minutes before Tibbs showed up in town. Skiles had to put up with season-ending injuries. So did Vinny for Dang. Dang was remarkably healthy for Tom Thibodeau. He played – all of a sudden, he turned into an Iron Man for Thibodeau. And I have no idea why. Carlos Boozer had a massive injury history. Suddenly, he's healthy for Thibodeau. And then everybody – the MVP year, like, you know, that Noah almost had with that great season, Taj played 82 games. Um uh, that year, Dunleavy played 82 games that year. I mean, they had remarkable health outside of Rose in some of those seasons. That, that's pretty and, critical. I mean, you, you, your MVP is out for an entire season. I would I wouldn't imagine there's too many coaches that have gone through that and, and have pulled out the same level of success. No, no doubt, no but, doubt. But 
you know, I think again, he sacrificed. How did, how did, how did Noah look going into the playoffs against the Wizards in that MVP year? Did he look like a guy who was rested and ready no, to play? No, he didn't. He looked like a guy that was hurting, um, but he was a guy that had a career year. So how we weight those things is different, and we should probably move on from Tibbs because we could probably do a, an entire podcast on Thibodeau. Cause it would get a, very ugly. It would. It probably would. It probably would. <laughs> and it's ruining us coming together and all this <laughs> love that we've shown for each other. Right, I, got, well, I got one time time for one more, and then I got to run out, man. I'm sorry, brother. No, you're right. Well, if, if that's the case, let's end it on this one. Kirk Heinrich was a terrific bull and was the catalyst of the bulls becoming <laughs> a winning organization again. How do you feel about that statement, Fred? Well, it's it's patently incorrect. So a little bit of history, a <laughs> little bit of history about Kirk Heinrich. Yeah, I couldn't stand Kirk. Yeah. I couldn't stand Kirk Heinrich at Kansas. I was I was <laughs> furious when they when they drafted him. And the Bulls actually in Kirk's rookie year were much worse than they were in the previous year. That was Paxson's first year, and I felt like the team went downhill. And I was frustrated with that. Everyone in my office knew I was a diehard Bulls fan, and they would just look at the, the score, like the, the game log, say, hey, how about that Heinrich, 18 points and six assists? And I'd be like, yeah, he's shooting 38%. That sucks. You know, like I, When did 38% become acceptable as a good percentage? That was my biggest issue with Kirk. When you get down to it, it, it gets down to this. For what he brings to the basketball game, yeah. to the game of basketball, I want a good shooter out of that. Like, he didn't get to the line a lot. You know, he's, he doesn't do anything exceptionally well. I never figured out why he was such a poor shooter for so much of his career. His best season, 06, 07, without a doubt, that guy was fantastic. Shot 44% from the field, 41% from three. That's what I wanted out of Kirk Heinrich. Instead, the next season, um, who got all the blame for that horrible f- subsequent year? All the blame went to Dang and, and Ben Gordon. When, If you look at the delta between Kirk in 06 and 07 and 07 08, mm-hmm. Kirk Heinrich fell off a wall. Kirk Dude. Heinrich was never the same after the 07 season. That season, he was great during the regular season. He was horrible in the playoffs. He got yeah. married that, that summer. Yeah. And ever since then... I don't know what this guy – he had an elevated status in the city of Chicago that wasn't deserved. He made a ton of money, and he sucked. And then <laughs> and the two best years the two best years that we had was when he was traded out of town. We used all that cap space to bring in guys like Corver, the bench mob, all those great guys. We, we sent him out of town. We had two great years. And then when he comes back, I have to put up with this again – he was horrible, and Tibbs continued to play him. And he never shot – like his last four years in the league, he shot under 40%. I'm like, under 40% in high school sucks. I, it, it, why is people giving him the love? It, it, to me, I, I, can't, I can't figure it out other than he's so, kind of unique that he's a white guy who plays halfway decent perimeter defense. That's very rare in the NBA. You know, so, uh, so I, I've just always been bothered by him and – to me, the bigger the bigger issue was, without a doubt, every Ben Gordon hater I met loved Kirk Heinrich. <laughs> and I loved Ben Gordon. Ben Gordon had the ability to hit shots in the fourth quarter, which is so rare. And, uh, I mean, he people forget Ben Gordon averaged over 20 points for two Bulls playoff teams. Very hard to do. And, um, you know, Kirk got all the love, though, because he's got all the – what 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 they give with the, the the grit the, the moxie the grit <laughs> give me a break so why am I wrong on that go ahead let me hear your your take on why he's so lovable why he's so lovable because he was the first pick Paxson made 
that made this organization or turned this organization around. He averaged 13 points and seven assists in his, his rookie season. He, he what was the shot percentage? Yeah, his shooting percentage was just bad, but a lot of his shots, and this is something that you don't recognize, Fred. As a shooter, a lot of his shots <laughs> came from the three-point line. Now, if a lot of your shots come from the three-point line, you're not going to be averaging a percentage that's up around 45, 46, 47%. That's just not possible unless you're shooting that, that well unless from... Unless you're Ben Gordon. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> ben <laughs> okay. Gordon shot over 40% from three almost every year. Yeah. Until, but- uh Ben Gordon was a more phenomenal. dynamic scorer than Kirk Heinrich was. But to, to, just to, to illustrate my point, in Kirk's last few seasons, almost half of his, half, almost half of his shots were coming from the three-point line. He shot well from the three-point line, but if you're shooting 36, 37, 38% from the three-point line and half of your shots are coming from the three-point line, then naturally your field goal percentage is never going to be 47% or something like that because you're not shooting your three ball that well and most of your shots are coming from three point lines. So that was my main issue with your whole field goal percentage criteria that you constantly bring up with Kirk Heinrich, which irritates me to no end. <laughs> but look, look, what, what I will say is I do have an irrational love for Kirk Heinrich to the point where I know I'll say stupid things and I do so on purpose. One, to get a rise out of you. But um, look, I acknowledge that <laughs> Kirk Heinrich is one of those topics where I'm, I have a, di- a difficult time um, being as objective as I can be based on what he meant to me as a fan, I guess. But um, look, we'll, we'll leave it there because, again, that could be an entire podcast on its own. Um, so we so we'll leave it there. We, we've, we've had a good chat, Fred. I think we've, we've disagreed on a few things. We've agreed on a few things as well, which is to my surprise. So it's, it's been a good lengthy chat. Uh Tell the people, Fred, where, where they can follow you online, where they can get your uh, your unfiltered rants. Yeah. Well, Chicago Bullseye, we're hopefully going to be redoing the site very soon. I don't know if you remember the great Doug Tonus. Yes, I do. But I've, I've coaxed him out of retirement, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually going to start posting and hopefully uh, reigniting his, his Bulls podcast Right. From the Chicago Bullseye. Sweet. So um, Doug's a good friend and uh, love the guy. And he, I think since he, he's ended his cast, a very important voice in the Bulls community has been lost. So yeah. I've been trying to get him back, and I think he's finally going to come back. He's a great man. So uh, find us at Chicago Bullseye. You can look on iTunes. I'm, I'm, we're going to really start, I think, posting more because I am passionate about the team. You can also find me at, uh, you know, at CBE Fred on Twitter, at CBE Fred. Uh, and then also see Red Fred on the Waddle and Sylvie show. I'm a regular guest now, kind of becoming cult status as the uh, Bulls optimist. <laughs> Lo- local but, radio uh, star. <laughs> local radio star, exactly. But, uh, man, it's been great talking to you, Mark. Honestly, I love you, brother. I know we, we, we have a lot of hateful uh, – um, <laughs> and I, I know people find it entertaining. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when it gets down to it, like I said, we both have a love for this team. I think that's the most important thing. And even though I'm right and you're wrong on so many of these issues. We've come to a common ground, I think, on a lot of issues today. I, I, I knew we weren't as far off on Nico as I thought. And, yeah. uh, you know, John Pat, I mean, uh, as far as uh, Kirk Heinrich goes, we'll never come to agreement there. But, you know, some of these other issues that are important for the team going forward, I think we're in a, in one last question, though, I got for you. Oh, if the yeah. team comes back, it comes back as – as um as constituted you know pretty much at the end of last year with the addition of a you know obviously number one pick yep 
uh, what do you predict they'll be in terms of wins next or? year? Yeah, wins and yeah, in general, like what, what do you think they're ceiling at? Yeah, look, I, I couldn't imagine it being greater than what it was this season. So they obviously won forty-one games this season. Wade will be a year older. Rondo will be a year older. Uh, look, I, I would put him anywhere anywhere between thirty-eight and forty-two wins. Pretty much right in the middle, straight bang right in the middle again. The only way they, so they see that is if they get real significant internal growth from Denzel Valentine. If he becomes Paul Pierce again, or Paul Pierce, if Bobby Portis becomes a good player, Felicio, if he be, can uh, become a, a really high IQ backup center, these sorts of things, that's where the real improvement is. But I'll say anywhere between 38 and 42 wins. How about you? All right. I'm, I'm going to disagree. I think, you know, with any new team, uh, it takes a while for it to develop the, you know, the chemistry. And if you come back with the exact same team, yeah. that alone is going to help with wins. And, uh, what do you say? You're right, though. You hit on a point. You're going to need one of those guys. It's, it's got to be Portis or Valentine has yeah. to take a jump. Yeah. And I expect both of them to take a jump. So I'm going to say 46 to 50 wins Jeez. for next year's team. Oh, um, with Jimmy say 62. So that's actually, uh, <laughs> how dare you? 62. <laughs> But no, uh, fair enough. Right. We've locked that in. Would you say forty-six to fifty? I've said thirty-eight to forty-two. So next season, when we're going at each other, we've got this on record, and um, yeah, we can we can re- refer back to this as you know, if the team comes back as as presently constructed, we can refer back to this and see who was right. I've got a sneaking suspicion I will be, but um, as always, but we will see. Time will tell. All right, my man. Thanks, Great Fred. Appreciate with you Mark. joining me, mate. Really do. All the best, brother. Take it easy, Matt. Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.